Case number 20-1791, General Motors, LLC, et al. versus FCA US, LLC, et al. Oral argument not to exceed 15 minutes per side. Mr. Clement for the appellants. Thank you, your honors. Paul Clement for the appellants, GM, and I'm going to endeavor to save three minutes for rebuttal. Uh, may it please the court. The district court plainly erred in dismissing this RICO action for failing to allege proximate cause without even providing leave to amend. In reality, the original complaint more than adequately alleged that GM was the direct and intended victim of FCA's scheme to bribe officials of their shared union to inflict harm on GM. This is not a case where GM is simply complaining that FCA brought its union to reduce FCA's own labor costs, which in turn allowed it to lower its prices, which in turn caused GM's competitive injury. Instead, GM has alleged that it is the intended target of FCA's efforts to corrupt their shared union to raise GM's labor costs directly. If GM can prove those allegations, there's nothing indirect about GM's injuries. It was the direct and intended target of the alleged scheme, and GM dealt directly with the entity that FCA was alleged to have controlled in violation of 1962B. If FCA had brought not the company's shared union, but their shared regulator, NHTSA, and they had bribed NHTSA not just to go easy on FCA, but to go hard on GM, it would seem clear beyond cavil that GM could bring a civil RICO action to recover for the injuries inflicted by that scheme. Help us, it's a question, isn't it, of directness? How, how was that directness alleged? So, so give me, um, in your reply brief, you talk about just increased labor costs. costs. Um, so give me generally the theories of the mechanism that was employed to directly impact GM. So thank you, Your Honor. I mean, I, I would say ultimately, I believe the test is proximate cause, which is informed by directness. I don't know that there's a freestanding directness test, but that quibble aside, I would say that, you know, there's really sort of two phases to what went on here. And in the first phase, in the context of a union that is typified by pattern bargaining, which I think is important because in this industry, generally, if you get a concession, everybody gets the concession. So in the context of that industry specifically, in the first phase before the 2015 pattern bargaining process, FCA obtained benefits for itself through bribes. And we allege equally secured through bribes the commitment from the union that comparable benefits would not be passed on to GM. And what, what do you allege that would show that that was the scheme, so to speak, and the assurance that comparable benefits would not be passed on to GM? Um, I, I'm struggling with the mechanism because the idea could have been, your opposing counsel argues, well, they just wanted to bribe um, the UAW to give them benefits, and surely they hoped that it would hurt GM, but the purpose was to benefit themselves. We understand that, Your Honor, and we allege specifically even in the unamended complaint that they intended these bribes not just to buy 
the union's agreement to lower FCA's costs, but to essentially refuse to pass on those benefits to GM. So we allege that originally. And then, of course, in our proposed amended complaint, which we don't think you need to get to, but if you were to get to that, we really provide what I think is the missing link, which is we allege that they have extended their bribery scheme to the specific UAW official, Joe Ashton, who was the UAW official for the GM account. And to me, I mean, again, we're, we're still at the allegations stage, so we haven't had any discovery, but I think that allegation absolutely ought to seal the deal for us because if they're simply securing benefits for themselves and not paying to get those benefits not passed on to GM, there is no reason they should be bribing the UAW official for the GM account. And the way UAW is set up, I mean, they have sort of a separate little division for the Chrysler account, a separate division for the Ford account, and a separate division for the GM account. And that seems to me to be such a powerful, specific allegation. It's as if we have caught FCA, or so we allege, making bribes not to NHTSA in general, but to the specific NHTSA official responsible for auditing GM. What do we do? What do we do with it seems to me they're intervening actors. The the workers are the bribes hurt the workers to the extent that there are concessions that they end up giving up or and or they are the ones who ultimately approve the CBAs. So why don't they, in some sense, break the chain of causation with but or are the ones that are able to vindicate their rights? So, Your Honor, we don't think they break the chain of causation. And we think that, I mean, you know, they may have, it's theoretically possible as to the pre-2015 allegations that they might have their own theoretical action. Um, But I don't think it's not the same action. Our injuries aren't derivative of theirs. And then when you get to 2015, uh, then the you know our allegations are essentially FCA conspired with the union to raise the labor costs of everybody, including GM. So as to that 2015 allegation, the union's not even injured. So we're the only people who are in a position to bring the action. But just to get to the nub of the question, I don't think the Supreme Court's precedents in this area say that nobody else can be injured at all. And I I point to specifically Bridge, which I would point to as it's actually the last Supreme Court majority opinion on this issue, because my friends on the other side want to rely on Hemi, but that's just a plurality opinion as to proximate cause. And in the Bridge opinion specifically, I think two things are important. One, at, at one point in the opinion, Justice Thomas says, yeah, the lower court said that the, that the county was not injured at all here, and the defendants quibble with that, but that's not really important because if the county may have been injured, but only in a different way, in a more speculative way. We think we're very analogous to that, but we also think we are absolutely directly analogous to the hypothetical that Justice Thomas used in his opinion for the court to prove the point. Because in addition to talking about the actual facts that were before the court, of course, he talked about a hypothetical where a company made misrepresentations to the shared customer pool of it and its rival. 
You can imagine a company basically saying, hey, my rival's closed for COVID and telling all their customers that. And the court said that the rival could bring an action, even though, um, and what, of course, the court was focused on there is the fact that the rival could bring the action, even though it didn't directly rely on the misrepresentations the shared customers did. But I think if you think about that hypothetical, there's no question those customers are also injured almost in the exact way the union is injured here, which is they presumably paid too much or they went to an inferior supplier of the product because of the misrepresentations. But because the whole point of the scheme was to mulch the rival, then I think that that is why the court under those circumstances used that, you know, again, it framed its own hypo. So it picked that, I think, as a relatively obvious case where a RICO action could go forward. And we think that's really directly analogous to this case. So, uh, um, Mr. Clement, do you think that uh, Hemi, I know Hemi is just a plurality opinion. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts seems to shut down the intentionality line in response to um, Justice Breyer's dissent. Justice Thomas, who wrote Bridge, joins Justice Roberts. Do you think Hemi isn't the the plurality isn't the controlling opinion under Marx? Is that the theory? Like what, well, that, that, why doesn't Hemi control? I, I think Judge Larson, if you apply the Marx analysis to the Hemi decision, there is no question that Justice Ginsburg's opinion controls. She wrote that short three paragraph opinion and she specifically said in it, and I'm quoting, I join the, uh, you know, I, I concur in the judgment, quote, without subscribing to the broader range of the court's proximate cause analysis, end quote. Mm -hmm. So if you do the Marx analysis on the Hemi opinion, there is no question that you get to the Justice Ginsburg opinion as being the narrowest of the opinions. And there is no question it provides zero help for my, my friend on the other side because Justice Ginsburg relied on the fact that the city of New York couldn't collect taxes directly from Hemi and the fact that there wasn't a cause of action under the Jenkins Act. Yeah. So that, that does them no good. And I do think this is an easy case for the Marx analysis because what she's specifically not agreeing to is the broader pronouncements in the plurality opinion about proximate cause, which is the precise thing that the district court and my friend on the other side relies on. Yeah. So I, and, and I would also say that, um, you know, the Wallace opinion of this court is not a plurality. Yeah, but, it so, but we can't rely on Wallace, can we? I mean, we have a, a prior opinion, I think it's called Perry, that is inconsistent with Wallace. I mean, I understand the district court probably couldn't reject Wallace, but I'm not sure we're bound by Wallace because we have this Perry case. Uh, so I'd have to quick double check, Your Honor. I think Perry is subsequent to oh. uh, Wallace. So and 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 they're actually Perry is 2003 and Wallace is 2013. Yes. So I think Perry would be the binding opinion. I, I would also note there really isn't any tension between Wallace and Perry. I think they're both written by Judge Cole, in fact, um, if memory serves. And so all Perry said is, and I think absolutely correctly, is the fact that the underlying RICO predicates or conduct was intentional doesn't matter. And of course, that only makes sense. 
I mean, you know, the, the plaintiffs there were trying to say, well, this is this is an intentional, essentially tort, not like a negligence style tort. And that doesn't make any sense because almost all of the RICO predicates require intentional conduct. Right. So a, a line that simply said we're going to apply a different proximate cause test when the predicates involve intentional conduct would make no sense. So Perry rejects that. It is consistent with Wallace. We don't like I don't think we need you to rely on Wallace. We think it's good law. But my, my point is, I think if you put Wallace aside for a second and just look at Anza and Bridge, which are the only majority opinions, I think the law that clearly emerges is the ultimate test is proximate cause. Directness matters. And so does foreseeability, at least to the extent that you were talking about. And this is the line that Justice Thomas used multiple times in Bridge, if the plaintiff is the intended target of the scheme, then it's an easy case for directness. And could I make just one more point on directness, which is, I think this is a particularly easy case for directness with respect to the 1962B count. And I do think that you have to look at the various counts separately. In fact, if you go back to Anza, Anza remanded the 1962A count, even though it poured out the 1962C count on proximate cause. So Let me ask just... quickly on, on, um, on Bridge that you were referencing the natural, the foreseeable and natural consequence of the scheme. But the court goes on to say, um, and there are no independent factors that account for the injury. There's no risk of duplicative recovery by plaintiffs removed at different levels of injury from the violation. And no more immediate victim is better situated to sue. How do you fit within those qualifications of foreseeable and natural consequence? Well, I think it's most clear, Your Honor, with respect to 2015 and the pattern. May I finish my answer? Oh, please. I think it's most clear with respect to 2015, because there, our allegation is that GM, uh, rather FCA, conspired with the union to impose an agreement that had unusually high labor costs. So those allegations don't injure anybody but GM. Then the you union, have, you, that wasn't that the double where the um, UAW employees rejected it, he rejected the offered contract, and then came back, and the next contract, of course, was richer. But if there had been a scheme, why weren't why wasn't the vote of the union an intervening controlling factor? It, it, it wasn't, Your Honor, for the following reason. The, the rank and file, uh, you know, sort of did not approve the first sweetheart deal um, because they weren't, in a, you know, they, FCA bribed, you know, essentially a lot of people in the leadership of the UAW, but they couldn't bribe everybody in the rank and file. And Which so, isn't that the classic intervening cause? No, because we're not, we're not, inj- what we're injured by is the ultimate deal that the UAW and the, it's it's the second deal that injures us. We're not injured. Okay, but, but you did have some control in the second deal because you negotiated it down, didn't you? But but we negotiated it down in a way that, you know, I, I, the way that I think about that, Your Honor, is you know, we mitigated our injuries in negotiating it down. But we were clearly, I mean, if, this, if we are allowed to prove our case, 
what we will prove is that but for this bribery scheme, we would have gotten much lower labor costs. And that's not just a wing and a prayer. That's because we were negotiating, and this is the way the pattern bargaining works. We were negotiating with the union on our own before they picked a definitive bargaining pa partner for the pattern bargaining. And we, got a, we, we were negotiating towards a much better deal than we ended up with. And why did we not end up with the better deal we were negotiating? Because FCA conspired with the UAW to get a, a deal that was very disfavorable for us. We alleged for the specific purpose of injuring us directly. And that agreement was ultimately approved. Yeah, it took them the second time, but it was ultimately approved by the UAW rank and file. And that's the agreement that raised our labor costs. And so if we can prove that and connect the dots, then I think we actually have a fairly straightforward damages case where we just have to show the delta between what we would have gotten uh, but for the corrupt scheme and what we ended up with. But, and but, I did, uh, I'm sorry. Why would your rank and file have approved the deal? You pre-negotiated this deal with General Motors it was a better deal than the deal that Fiat Chrysler, Fiat Chrysler, their workers were in a worse bargaining position. They were weaker. They rejected the deal. You think you could have gotten your rank and file, which had more bargaining power, would have approved this deal? Why is that? Like, it, well, if, if, if you don't have a deal, it doesn't matter if you have a deal with UAW, the rank and file still has to approve it, right? Yes, but I think that, I mean, first of all, I don't know that the way that the approval works is it's sort of agreement by agreement. But in all events, what I would say is we think that um, we would have gotten approval from the union who would have, I, I think, understood that they were negotiating with the strongest party and mm -hmm. this was the best deal they're going to get. So if I could take one step back, just to, I know I'm over my time, but I want to give you a complete answer. The way that economists who study pattern bargaining have concluded independently is that the rational thing for a union to do is to negotiate with the employer who's in the strongest position right. and then try to use that to get a better, a comparable deal with the weaker employees and employers, right? So one of the things that looks so suspicious, not just to us, but to neutral economists watching the industry here was the fact that the union picked FCA to do this deal. Mm -hmm. Now, presumably the UAW rank and file has a sense of this too. So when there's a deal that the leadership has negotiated with FCA, they may be particularly suspicious of that because they know that FCA has the lowest labor costs going in. And mm -hmm. so the rank and file may think, I'm suspicious about this because I think I can get a better deal with GM. If you consider the counterfactual world where we're picked as the bargaining power partner and we come up with the deal based on our stronger position, our higher labor costs, I think it's going to be much more likely that the union, when they're presented with that deal, is going to be like, yeah, this is the best deal we can get. Here's what I'm struggling with. It seems like much of your argument, it uses the words of speculation. I think this is what economists believe. Um, and uh, uh, your opposing counsel argues that it does not 
rise to the level of stating a claim because you are speculative and you, you are inherently speculative in claiming we should have been the initial bargaining partner, we would have been the initial bargaining partner, and then this is what would have happened, even though, as anyone who does labor law knows, um, the reactions of the union may surprise people. And, and what the body wants, what the rank and file wants may not necessarily be what the economists suggest is the best thing. How do you move your claim with these intervening rights of others to either move it forward or cut it off? How do you move that claim to the level of factual specificity necessary to state a claim? Well, Your Honor, I mean, you know, ultimately, I think we get to a level of greater specificity eventually by getting some discovery. But I don't think there's any lack of, spec of, of specificity or undue speculation in what we allege. We allege very specifically that they, with their bribes, were in a position to inflict higher labor costs on us. That's what they paid for. Now, we may or may not be able to prove that, but that's what we allege. And if we can prove that, that is a direct line. We also allege that they controlled the union. And if you understand that that's the heart of our 1962B allegations, there's nothing indirect about this. We were dealing with the controlled entity, which is the UAW, directly to our detriment. I, I don't think you can be any more direct than that. And that is essentially equivalent to the 1962A allegations that the court, even in ANZA, let go forward. Because- Thank you. you, you will have your rebuttal time. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Holly, is that- Yes, Your Honor. <clears throat> uh, may it please the court, Stephen Holly for Appalese, FCA, US, LLC, and Fiat Chrysler Automobiles, NV, which is now known as Stellantis, NV. Your Honors, there is a straightforward basis for affirming the well-reasoned decision of the district court in this case, which dismissed GM's complaint with prejudice. GM alleges two sets of predicate acts to support its RICO claims, and I want to address them separately. The first set of predicate acts involves payments to certain employees of the United Auto Workers that were facilitated, facilitated by certain FCA employees. And GM alleges that these prohibited payments under Section 302 of the Labor Management Relations Act are what caused the UAW to give various benefits, concessions, and advantages to FCA in the negotiation, implementation, and administration of collective bargaining agreements. The problem with this, however, is as the court explained in both Hemi Group and ANZA, the actions that allegedly caused the harm to GM are distinct from the actions that constitute the predicate acts. The harm suffered by GM, as Mr. Clement just said, was caused by the collective bargaining agreements with the United Auto Workers, which is not a party to this case. And it is those agreements that GM says caused it to have higher labor costs. The labor law violation, the prohibited payments, did not dictate the terms of GM's collective bargaining agreements. Those agreements were in very substantial part the independent actions of the UAW, 
the members of the UAW who had to vote whether or not to ratify them and by GM itself. Council, what about the arguments and the allegations about that, um, that FCA bribed the UAW to deny concessions to GM? Well, actually, Your Honor, concessions are denied. How would the workers be harmed by that? The workers would be benefited by the denial of concessions. So so the 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 workers of FCA or the workers of GM, Your Honor? All of the UAW. Well, so because if if GM says I could have gotten concessions, but you bribed UAW to deny concessions to me, some of which they were granting to FCA. Now, how, what is the intervening force in that deal? Well, the intervening force in that deal, Your Honor, is that, so even taking the allegations in paragraph 71 of the complaint at face value, right? the allegation is that there was not only um, a payment to the union in order to give FCA benefits for itself, which is, of course, is what is alleged in the complaint. But in this paragraph, in a sort of offhand way, it says, quote, at the same time, through its bribery, FCA ensured that while these special advantages were conferred on FCA, the same or similar advantages were not provided to at least GM, despite it seeking similar programs and concessions, close quote. There's a series of those. There's the drugs, there's the um, WCO and the GM wanted GMS. All of those GM alleges were denied just to GM. Well, actually, Your Honor, if you look at paragraph 72 through 79, it doesn't quite say that. What it says is that GM did not get the same deal. But there are many intervening reasons why that might be true. For example, yeah, well, what they allege in 75 is as FCA group had directed through its bribery to certain corrupt UAW officials, these unique advantages, um, such as C- WCM, were not made available to GM. I mean, that that's is- a connection right there. You bribed, you got it, we don't. So you still have the problem, Your Honor, as, as was pointed out in the earlier argument, that even if that's all true, you have the notion that there was a deal agreed to by the United Auto Workers and GM. There are many, many factors that go into something as complicated as a collective bargaining agreement. Sure. The membership of the UAW rejected that deal. Um, it, it had to be sweetened. Um, then they go to GM under pattern. Let me, um, I understand that. Let me interrupt just to make sure that you're formatting your response to some of the other concessions that I'm talking about, either the, um, the formulary for drugs, the UCM versus GMS, um, and particularly the cap on um, temporary or tier two employees, which is a substantial difference in cost. Uh, Include those in your response, please. I don't think that that I I was intending to, Your Honor, and I still think that the proximate cause case, as the district court pointed out, is very, very difficult because 
you have all of these intervening events between the payments, which allegedly, uh, and there's a but for cause problem here because General Holyfield at the UAW died in April of 2015. Mr. Iacobelli, who was the you know uh, head sort of person on the FCA side, left FCA in June of 2015, and the negotiation of the 2015 collective bargaining agreement didn't begin until September. But putting aside that sort of but-for causation problem, even if these payments resulted in FCA being put in the position to be the lead negotiator, you still, have, you still can't show that the payments were the direct cause of these other events because- Well, we're, many- at, the, we're at, the, at the motion to dismiss stage. So the question is, what have they adequately alleged? Have they failed to adequately allege that direct con that direct construct? Absolutely. Or... Sorry, Your Honor. I didn't oh, no, to... go ahead, please. <laughs> no, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, absolutely, they've failed to allege it. There, there is nothing. There is nothing necessary about giving a good deal to the UAW uh, that relies on these prohibited payments. It's exactly the sort of analysis is in ANZA where the court said what hurt the plaintiff was that its competitor lowered its prices. But the competitor could have lowered its prices for a whole range of reasons, having nothing to do with the fact that it wasn't paying the state of New York sales tax. Right, but it would, uh, Mike, so if, if in ANZA they had alleged in the complaint that they lowered their prices to gain market share, intending to hurt their competitor, and in fact, the scheme had succeeded, would that have been okay? In other words, I don't, I see in ANZA, there's this possibility that all of the, that they could have done it for other reasons. But in this case, there's a specific allegation that the bribery was done to hurt GM. And it seems like it did hurt GM. So why isn't this just an intentional tort? And yes, the causation chain may be a little bit attenuated, but don't we relax the, the causation in an intentional tort situation where you actually accomplished what you intended to accomplish? I think, Your Honor, that Justice Kennedy addressed the court's question in specifics in ANZA. He says the Second Circuit reached a contrary conclusion apparently reasoning that because the ANZAs allegedly sought to gain a competitive advantage over ideal, it is immaterial whether they took an indirect route to reach their goal. A RICO plaintiff cannot circumvent the proximate cause requirement simply by claiming that the defendant's aim was to increase market share at the competitor's expense. That is on all fours with what GM is claiming here. And, and this is not a tort case. This is a RICO case brought by a, an economic competitor of FCA. And the cases make very clear that the proximate cause requirement in those sorts of cases is applied very strictly. I also want to talk but, to your but honor. Counsel, the, the problem I keep coming up with, uh, uh, coming up against in your theory is that what it means is if you're an intentional actor, and you are good at it, 
right? You're, I mean, the whole thing, Enrico's aimed at organized crime. So like that's its core. So you're really good at organized crime. You're really good, good at this. So you set up your dominoes in this way and you're really good at it. So you know that when you push the first one, it's gonna fall and it's intentional. Like you've thought through all the things and it works. You're not liable. And that just seems weird if you're, if you have a simple minded scheme, well, then you just have the first domino and all you're aiming at is the second one. Well, then there's liability. But if you have a complicated scheme more easily, less likely to be detected, well, then you, you're not liable. It just seems weird to me. Well, your honor, I, I think that, you know, the cases, the Supreme Court precedents, if you look at Holmes, um, Holmes talks about the fact that the RICO proximate cause requirement is predicated on Section 4 of the Clayton Act, you know, right. which deals with, you know, directness of injury in the antitrust context. And if we look at the three Holmes factors in this case, GM does not fare well at all, which is just further confirmation that its, its claimed injuries are very indirect. I mean, there are first, more immediate victims of these prohibited payments. And that's not the workers? Right, the workers who not only had an incentive to sue, Your Honor, but did. We now have, as of this weekend... But, but eight... here's the deal. So if, if General... If, if Fiat Chrysler had bribed the UAW... So your theory is Fiat Chrysler bribed the UAW to harm... Fiat Chrysler workers help General Motors workers, which harms General Motors, so they lose. But if Fiat Chrysler instead had bribed the UAW to help General Motors workers, well, now there's no victim. The next victim in line is General Motors management, the company, so now they can recover, correct? Isn't that kind of just odd? I don't think so, Your Honor. I, I think that, that you have to show a direct causal connection, not between some broad-based scheme, uh, which, which Mr. Clement seemed to be suggesting, but between the predicate acts, which here are the violations of Section 302 of the Labor Management Relations Act, and these false tax forms, which didn't get uh -huh. mentioned this morning for good reason, um, and, and the alleged harm, which is increased labor costs. But there are too many steps in between payments to the UAW, even if one could accept the proposition that those payments are what dictated the, the uh, positions taken by the UAW in bargaining with GM. You know, there, you know at, at a minimum, there are the decisions by the rank and file members of the union um, about whether to accept the deals that are offered to them. Um, and, you know, I, I take may, the point. May I interrupt and add something to that? Um, how, did, how did the two-tier and temporary workers fit into that analogy? Because um, the, you are have the employment of the numbers of those 
types of employees is what really is what GM is alleging really impacted them. Does that track with your argument? Yes, Your Honor, because how so? Because if, in fact, there was some corrupt deal between the UAW and FCA that entitled FCA to use more uh, tier two workers who got paid substantially less than tier one workers and a deal to let FCA use more temporary workers who are also much less expensive than regular tier one workers, then the most immediately harmed people were the members of the UAW who got paid less money than they otherwise would have. I mean, the same is true of this allegation that the union soft-pedaled grievances and health and safety issues raised by FCA workers. If, if that really happened, if that was the consequence of these prohibited payments, which I do not accept, but if it did, they're taking it as, as a given, uh, then the people who were hurt were not GM, but members of the union uh, who otherwise uh, didn't have their grievances taken seriously or their health and safety issues taken seriously. Uh, Your Honors, I, I see that I've run out of time, I, um, and I would like to address the motion to amend, but uh, I, I don't think I have an opportunity, so I will. You can stop. stand on your briefing. <laughs> Thank you, Your Honor. Judge Nalbandian. Can I ask a quick question? Um, you said that the, some workers have sued now to vindicate certain rights. Um, have they sued over the deal that was reached with GM or just with regard to concessions that they gave up with respect to FCA? The, the allegations of these complaints, Your Honor, are that the prohibited payments uh, were unfair labor practices um, and that they hurt the workers. There is no allegation, of, as of course there is in none of the criminal cases, that GM had anything to do with the prohibited payments or was affected by them in any way. Well, one quick follow-up. If you're FCA and you are allowed to have um, more concessions, I'm trying to work this through, and you compared to GM, then the GM workers that are employed have fewer opportunities to be either a tier two or a temporary worker. So the GM employees were somewhat benefited in that they kept their historic status, right? But well, GM itself was harmed because FCA had a large number of tier two and a large number of temporary employees that GM understood was going to be capped and then was not. So help me work through that logistical problem. But I think, Your Honor, if, if you're looking at the directness of injury analysis in ANZA and in Holmes, you're still talking about the most directly injured people being the workers um, who got paid less money or in, in your hypothetical, if well, I understand it correctly, people at GM who... I, I wasn't entirely sure about that question. But well, I don't I mean, think, let me explain. I, I don't think the GM employees were harmed in the same way the FCA employees were harmed because the FCA was allowed to have 
two tiers of lower paid employees, temporary and tier two. So they got paid less at FCA. At GM, GM retained its historical percentage of full pay employees and the lower historical um, potential or percentage of tier two employees and temporary employees, assuming that the cap that had come through bankruptcy would be reimposed, and it in fact was not. So wasn't that GM that was harmed by that? I don't think so, Your Honor. I mean, the, the mere fact that that GM employees may not have been adversely affected by this alleged corrupt scheme to let FCA have more tier two and more temporary workers doesn't change the Holmes analysis or the ANZA analysis that the most directly affected party uh, by virtue of the prohibited payments were the workers at FCA. You know, we can, you can always go out, you know, further steps into the, you know, the proximate cause ether. But, but if you're focusing on what the Supreme Court has said is the important factor, which is who is the most directly affected, what is the first step in the chain of causation? That is the FCA workers, Your Honor. And, and what happened to the GM workers? You know, that is really of no consequence, I would say. Yes, one more quick question. Please. It could actually be either counsel to answer this question. It doesn't really matter. But where is Ford in all of this? Like, I just, it's, a, it's just a question I have. What well, <laughs> well, that's a very, it's a very good point, Your Honor, because it's also a Holmes factor that other people um, under the theory uh, asserted by GM could also sue and then you'd have the risk of multiple recoveries and apportionment of damages. If GM as a complete bystander to these prohibited payments has standing under RICO to sue, then so does Ford and Toyota and Honda and Volkswagen and all of their tier one suppliers and all of their dealers. That's exactly the sort of thing that the Supreme Court in Holmes said you shouldn't allow to happen. You need to have a direct causal connection to stop half the world from having standing under RICO, which was never intended to be some generalized federal law of torts. It, it has very strict requirements in order to allow someone to prevail, which is why most RICO claims are dismissed. It's very hard to meet this causation. Thank you, counsel. Standard. Do you have any, you need a follow-up, Judge Larson? No, no, thank you. Judge well, Nalbandian? No, um, Mr. Clement. Thank you, Your Honor. Just a few points in rebuttal, including Ford. Um, you know, first, I'd, I'd, I'd focus on the Anza case, which my friend on the other side relies on. This is so much more direct than Anza. And I think in a way it explains why Ford hasn't sued and why there's no risk of Ford suing. The, what, what I would suggest this case would be more like Anza if in Anza, the alleged conduct was not just fraudulently not paying sales tax, but was bribing the local tax officials to audit the rival company. Now, if that were the allegations in ANZA, I don't think it would have remotely been dismissed for lack of proximate cause or directness. 
And that also helps explain why Ford's not suing here. FCA had an obsession with GM. They wanted to take it over in a merger, and therefore they had a distinct incentive to injure GM and not just benefit themselves to the detriment of all other competitors. We allege well, they were- the, So here's the question. I think you clearly, um, clearly allege that, but here's the question that your opposing counsel raises. If your arguments open RICO to the type of claims that you um, have alleged, then why don't your arguments open RICO to a claim by Ford and other suppliers um, in the same way? Your, your why, Honor, why doesn't that just make RICO expand exponentially to a whole variety of harmed entities? The answer, Your Honor, is because it is not just the fact that Ford, that, that FCA benefited itself and all other entities subsequently were hurt. It's the allegations that they had a specific intent to harm GM. And that's going to be very rare to allege. And this brings me to another point I was hoping to make, which is another aspect of bridge, which I think is very helpful, is the discussion in and around footnote seven of Justice Thomas's opinion, where he points out that the proximate cause theory we're relying on here is the proximate cause theory that underlies essentially every intentional tortious interference with contract or tortious interference with commercial advantage. It's not some exotic multi-step process. It is basically our competitor didn't just try to compete better, but they specifically targeted us in an unfair way. And that, that I think that's important. The last point- well, here like is the, Before you get to your last point, here's my, my concern about that in Bridge is it does say <laughs> that. It does talk about foreseeable and natural consequences, but, but RICO is not a general tort remedy. So it goes on to say the three categories that we spoke about earlier, the independent factors accounting for the injury, duplicative recoveries by plaintiffs removed at different levels, and no immediate victim is better situated to sue. Those make RICO different from general tort remedies. So why, why, do, why does your remedy fit RICO and without these problems? So Judge Strantz, I'd like to answer that and then get to my last Please. point, which is actually related, helpfully. The, 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 first of all, I just think if you focus in on the allegations here, there, I think we actually fare quite well under those other factors that bring us well within RICO. Because, and your, your colloquy with my, my friend on the other side brought this out. If you focus first on the pre-2015 allegations about the bribes specifically to deny concessions to GM, nobody else is injured by those allegations other than GM. And when you pressed my friend on those allegations, he kept on wanting to talk about 2015. But in the pre-2015 context, we are talking about concessions that are being given outside the normal four-year pattern bargaining uh, process, where it's a direct line. We want those same concessions. We're not getting them, we allege, because the UAW officials have been brought. There's nobody else in that. My last point is, even if 
as to some of the allegations, somebody else is incidentally injured in a different way, that can't be enough to pour us out under RICO. And the reason is that the most classic imaginable RICO violation is a so-called bust out where organized crime infiltrates a legitimate business in an effort to defraud the creditors of the legitimate business. Every time that happens, the equity holders in the legitimate business are also going to be injured. But I can't imagine that the creditors of the infiltrated legitimate business don't have the classic RICO cause of action. So what, what I think Holmes is getting at, and I think it goes back to it all being based on the Clayton Act, you, you can't have like an indirect purchaser claim where you're bringing the exact same injury that somebody else has. But if the union is injured in some different way and we are the direct and intended target of the scheme, we still have an action under the law. Thank you, Your Honor. Well, we, we thank you both. Your briefing is excellent. Your arguments were excellent. And um, this is a complex area. So having that is an advantage to us. The case will be taken under advisement and an opinion issued in due course. You may call the next case.